0: Well, thank you very much, brother, for the words of welcome, undeserved, utterly. But we appreciate very much what you had to say. I am sorry that my wife Anne isn't here. She was looking very much forward to getting to this service. She has had long links with the Sovereign Grace Adventist, and long before I ever knew there was such an organization. If you read a little article... Produced by the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. Written by the late Pastor J. Kyle Paisley. That's the late Dr. Paisley's father. The article is on, Shall the Church Pass Through the Tribulation? Worth reading. In that introduction, he mentions Anne's father. Not by name, but he talks about a young farmer from Ballymena, studying the scriptures and coming to a conclusion and talking with his pastor, who at that time believed in the secret rapture theory. But through the discussions they held, Pastor Paisley came round to the position of the SGAT and then became a speaker over there in the meetings in England. So she's sorry she's not here because she has the warmest regard For the position of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony, and together we have often talked about the wonderful things in the Bible regarding this glorious subject. Now, I would like to read from the book of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, and the chapter 25 of that book, Matthew chapter 25. It's an honor for me to be here tonight. i would say this while you're looking up the passage. It's an honor for me to be associated with the men who have been taking a leading part in these gatherings. Believe me, I am a very, very junior member of the triumvirate, junior in age and junior in every other way. I can remember the very first time I accompanied Dr. John Douglas over to London to a meeting in the Mission to the Jews that was headed up by the late Herman Newmark, a lovely Jewish Christian and a most remarkable little man and a wonderful preacher. He, he preached for us in Bethel, Pre-Presbyterian Church, many, many years ago. But I remember traveling over, and that's a long time ago. Many years have passed, and I consider it a, a great honor to be associated with Dr. Douglas and my dear brother, Mr. Toms, who took part in the earlier question time. Now, let's read, please, from Matthew chapter 25. them now that's a very important word. That links us to what has just been happening in the previous chapter. Remember this, Matthew didn't write down chapter 25, verse 1. There are no chapters, no verses, divisions in the original scriptures. Uh, so, it was much more obvious in the original scriptures that what is said in chapter 24 is very much linked to chapter 25. Sometimes, because we read the Bible in chapters, we end with a chapter, and then usually we leave it off until the next day, and we start again. And by the next day, we have forgotten that what we're reading now is indeed linked to what we read yesterday. Please take note of that. Then. Then, that is in the days, spoken of earlier. At the time, spoken of, in the closing, latter verses of chapter 24, and of course it's all about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. That's what the Savior's talking about. He's answering questions from disciples who asked him, when, when, when will this, what shall be the sign? Tell us, tell us. I often, when I preach on this, I often say you'll notice what the Lord didn't say when these disciples asked him questions. He didn't say, ah, but get all about prophecy. Stick to the doctrine. Stick to missionary work. Stick to evangelism. Don't you bother yourself about prophecy. No, he didn't. But he told them in great detail. Because that's the mind of the Lord. He wants us to know, among many other things that are of great importance, he wants us to consider prophecy and the return of himself amongst us. So, what we're about to read is set in the events spoken of at the latter part of chapter 24. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, while the bridegroom tarried The first generation of believers did not expect the Lord Jesus to come at any time. The Savior had taught them in quite a number of places that there was going to be a lengthy interval. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him. They that were ready. Are you ready tonight? Are you ready tonight? They that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily, I say unto you, I know you not. Salvation is all about knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Knowing him. Having a knowledge of him, of his mercy and his kindness, his goodness, his forgiveness, his pardon. Knowing him. I know you not, he says. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh." Amen. And may the Lord be pleased to bless his word to us. Would you just join with me, please, in the brief word of prayer? We need the Lord to come and speak to us tonight. O God, our Heavenly Father, I come to Thee, and o'est my heart. I pray, Lord, for grace. I pray for grace to rely utterly on Thee, and not in the least to trust in myself, to lean not on my own understanding. But O God, to lean on me, please, grant grace to us then tonight to preach, to uphold the Savior. And for all who are here, Lord, grant to each one of us a hearing ear a hungry heart, a thirsting soul. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. I'd like to remind us all just why it is that we're here tonight. We're met together in humble acknowledgement of the Lord's favor to us in these last days in that He has preserved His truth concerning the second coming and that He has, to a measure, reawakened amongst his people an awareness of just what he has said by his prophets on this glorious and blessed truth. We salute the memory of those who a hundred years ago took the stand that they did. I think I'm right in saying that there are very, very few, if any at all, organizations formed one hundred years ago that today stands exactly on the same ground. On the same ground, there are organizations that I believe God has honored and are most vital to the well-being of the cause of truth. And you know, already among them, there's cause for good people to have fears and concerns for cracks are appearing. But tonight we mark the 100th anniversary of an organization that stands exactly where it stood 100 years ago. One of the reasons why that is so is that every year I get a letter, as do others who are linked officially in some capacity as an officer in the SGAT, I get a letter requiring me to sign an undertaking that I believe the manifesto of the Southern Grace Advent Testimony still. Every year you have to sign up afresh. That's a good thing. The wise, the wise. So we're here to salute those who, under God, I believe, have already done a sterling work regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to turn you to Scripture. Well, I'll be turning you in many portions, but tonight I want you to turn to Acts chapter 3 to read with me some words spoken way back in that dawn of the Pentecostal age, beginning of the great spread of the gospel. Chapter 3 of the Acts of the Apostles, great miracle has taken place. A miracle has naturally attracted a crowd. And where there's a crowd, you find an apostle preaching. And Peter here is preaching. And he says in the verse 19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, and the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. There a few words there that I'd like you to particularly take note of. First of all, notice, Peter said, God has spoken by the mouth of all, all his prophets. People have often said to me, our minister never mentions this subject. There never was a prophet who didn't preach on this subject. That's what the Holy Ghost has written here. Does that not tell you something of its importance? Look again, the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. We're celebrating this gathering as somewhat unique because it's not that common for people to gather together in a prophetic conference. Though I must say that in Kilskiri we've been holding it for quite a number of years, just as a congregation of This here is a Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony-sponsored meeting, as it were. But you'll notice that Peter says that since the world began... God's people have been studying this matter. It's only in these days that the studying has stopped. I would that every minister would consider that fact. I would that every minister would listen to this question. Why, brother, do you not walk in the footsteps of the prophets, the holy prophets, who spoke on this subject since the beginning of the world? Oh, it's an important subject, men and women, an important subject. But Jude, the apostle, he indicates to us, gives us an example of just what it was the prophets preached since the dawn of time. It's a little reference that you could very easily miss. Situated as it is in the small little book of Jude and tucked away in that small little book at the end of it. And yet, it's a little statement that's just brimming. With important truth. Would you turn it up? The chapter well it's only the one chapter, but the verse fourteen of Jude. Listen to what Jude has to say. Verse fourteen. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand other saints. And let me just stop there and say that you'll notice that Jude is referring to the same rascals as Enoch was referring. You can see that he's criticizing these false prophets, these apostates, these deniers of God's truth and grace. And then he says, and Enoch spoke against them. You see, the battle against the lie has been going on for a long time. And the quarrel between God's people and God's servants... I'm the devil's crowd. It's been going on a long time. And Jude is saying, well, I'm taking up the very subject that Enoch spoke about. Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Adam was alive after Enoch was converted and when Enoch was walking with God, and when Enoch was preaching. And it's because of that that I'm inclined to think, Adam heard this sermon. Adam heard this sermon that Jude is quoting, that Enoch preached. The point being, men and women, the subject of the second coming of Christ has been studied, rejoiced over by God's people since the dawn of time. Before the first coming, they were studying the second coming. Isn't that significant in the light of the negligence there is today regarding the coming again of our Savior? The restitution of all things that Peter spoke about in that verse I read to you is of course the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it has been the subject of all the problems. I cannot I find myself Unable almost to to go any further with the message, because there's things springing into my mind regarding this. But how disappointed the Lord must be that this subject does not occupy us to a far greater degree. I don't often travel on a train because they went out of existence down our part of the world long, long, long ago. But now and then, usually when I'm over in England, I might get a chance to ride on the train. And I notice when you go there, people are loitering about the platform. But then suddenly there's a stir amongst them. The signal has indicated the train's about to come. And everybody is grabbing handbags and suitcases and other bits of luggage and items they're carrying. And they're getting ready near the edge of the platform, getting ready to get on. Don't you know the train's coming, believer? Don't you know the Lord is near? We ought to be ready. We ought to be getting ourselves ready for that event. Ready for that event. This blessed event, this wonderful return of our Savior, which has been universally spoken of by the prophets throughout the ages, from the beginning, has sadly been neglected by so many of God's servants. And not only today, but it's a subject that has, to a large degree, been neglected for centuries, for centuries. At this time, we meet to bless God for his stirring up of hearts. The hearts of men who some 180 years ago, and that's just an approximate date, but going back 180 years ago, there were men whose hearts were suddenly touched by God and who began to give thought to what the Bible had to say about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I feel myself that there is a great parallel between what happened 180 years ago and what happened in the times of Luther and Calvin and Knox, the time of the great Protestant Reformation. Back then, suddenly, there was a stirring, a reawakening and a rediscovering of the teaching of the Bible on the vital doctrines of the gospel. Well, 180 years ago, there was something similar. There was a rediscovering of the vital teaching of the Bible on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, his second advent. That's a way back in the earlier years of the 19th century. And men such as the Bonner brothers, men who ended their days in the Free Church of Scotland, and who did suffer ridicule for the position they took, the Bible position, Andrew and Horatio. Then there was Benjamin Wills Newton, a giant amongst those who expounded the Bible on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He likewise was stirred. And and you know, it's a bit like Calvin in France and Luther in Germany. Neither of them knew each other. And here was these men up in Scotland this man in England, and they were moved by God to consider the same glorious truth. Dr. C.Y. Biss, S.P. Tregelis, David Baron, a Jewish convert, George Mueller, and others. There's quite a the length of a list of names of men who round about the same time found themselves moved to consider what the Bible had to say about this Glorious subject. And there was an awakening. There was an unusual awakening, an unusual stirring amongst men with regards to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have to say, of course, that there were those in the earlier centuries who had a grasp of the truth, but there were very few. I think it would be right for me to honor the London Baptists, around about 1660, they drew up a confession. One of the very few confessions that ever appeared that stated specifically that they were anticipating the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his reign on earth, and other details that we hold dear regarding the return of Christ. But they were few and far between, and such references, to a large degree, disappeared from Baptist ranks. There were those amongst the Westminster divines, the authors of our own Westminster Confession of Faith. There were amongst those who believed what we believe. Although it pleases some to give the impression that the Westminster Confession of Faith does not teach what we believe, and that we are going against the oath that we took with regards to Westminster Confession of Faith. But that's not so. That's not so. But it suffice for me just at the present juncture to mention that there were those who bore witness in dark times to the truths of the whole fast. I can say to you, talk to... The Reverend McClellan, and he will put you in possession of an article that he penned on those amongst the Westminster divines who held to the view that we have concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's because of those men whose names I have just mentioned and listed, and who are featured amongst the publications of the Sovereign Grace Advent testimony, and their names live there on that table at the back of the meeting. Those men rejected the long-held view of the return of Christ that goes under the name of amillennialism. That is, that there is no millennial. The A carries the same meaning as the A in atheism. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in theism. And an amillennialist is someone who is against the idea of a millennial reign. And those men that I've mentioned were severely mocked and despised by those who clung to amillennialism. Amillennialism had its origins in the heretical teachings of one of the early church fathers, to give him this title, Origen. He lived from 184 to 253 A.D. Now, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of homilies and leaflets and pamphlets and expositions of the Word of God, almost the entire Bible indeed, interpreting God's Word by means of allegories. In other words, he didn't believe... That what God said, he meant literally. But he suggested that these things were but allegories. And that we had to place upon the Word of God our own interpretation and notions. And his method of interpretation became increasingly the norm for most preachers. And right up to the Reformation, that's what Popery believed and taught. And after the Reformation, sadly, they carried that over. Oh, they left many things in popery, but if only they had left behind Oregon's views and notions on understanding the Scripture. And sadly, there are all too many ministers today, good ministers, faithful ministers, men who love the Lord, but who adhere to this understanding with regards prophecy. You only have to open some of the most notable commentaries And when you come to a prophetic portion, speaking of the future of Israel, the future of Jerusalem, they will tell you, well, this doesn't mean Jerusalem. This doesn't mean the nation. This doesn't mean the country. This doesn't mean the Israelites. This is God speaking about the church. This is God speaking about the gospel age. But that's not so. That's not so. And I think it's a little bit arrogant, to say the least, For a mere man to come along and step out, as it were, from behind God and interrupt the Lord and say, Oh, by the way, he doesn't mean what he's saying. But let me tell you what he means. (laughs) I think that's arrogant. Foolish. That's what amillennialism does. It was some years ago that Dr. John Douglas penned a leaflet and produced it in which he drew a parallel between the principle of exegesis adhered to by those we have come to call in the Free Presbyterian Church modernists and liberals. He pointed out that the exegesis, the plan, the day followed when they were seeking to explain the word of God is very similar, if not altogether the same, as that used by Origen and the amillennialists. Now, Mr. Douglas didn't win too many friends as a result of producing that leaflet, but there were none of the amillennialists knocking down his door to challenge him or answer him. Because what he said was right, and they dare not challenge him. And it stands still so today. This evening we salute the memory of those whose testimony and witness gave rise to the Sovereign Grace Advent testimony a hundred years ago, and also those whose labors have kept the flame of truth burning brightly over the last hundred years. Mention has been made frequently of Mr. George Frommel, the first Sovereign Grace secretary. A nice English gentleman. I met him some time after I had, in company with the late, Pastor Jack Glass of Glasgow, chained myself to the railings of Buckingham Palace, which is not exactly what a nice English gentleman is inclined to do. But we got over that. We got over that, and I have the fondest memories of our dear brother, who is in glory even now. But we not only salute his name, I want to salute the name of Stephen Thomas. He took over from Mr. Fromo and his secretary still today. The work and the witness of the Sovereign Grace Advent testimony owes much to the unsparing, selfless labors of this man. That little book that comes, or little magazine that comes through our doors on time, entails an awful lot of work. The meetings that are organized faithfully in London requires a lot of work. And dear brother Stephen, I salute you tonight. I salute you tonight. But then there's somebody else I want to salute, and that's his wife Jean. She has labored alongside him, all her years of association with him. She is the most faithful Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony member, of that I have no doubt. I think I can say she has probably been at every meeting that it has organized. She is aided in the preparing, and posting, and packaging of the magazine. And wherever meetings have taken place in England, she usually is there making tea and providing refreshments for those who gather. Her home has an open door for invited preachers of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. My wife Anne and I have been lovingly looked after in her home, on many, many occasions. I must confess, I hate going there. Do you know why? Because they get out of their bed and give it to us. And disappear off into the, the rest of the house somewhere. And I always grieve over that. But that's the kindness of Stephen and Jean Tom. I know that Dr. John Douglas would wish to be associated with these words. As also the chairman here tonight, Mr. McMillan. I'm sure of that. Well, may it please the Lord to bless the ongoing witness of the Sovereign Grace Advent testimony. And may it begin, in His mercy, to advance more and more amongst people in this United Kingdom and, of course, further abroad. I have every hope that there is something significant in this gathering here this evening and the earlier part of the meetings here in Mewton Abbey. Now tonight, I want to yet turn to my text. I'll try not to keep you too long. I can assure you of that because I have to preach tomorrow at 12 o'clock in Ardara, so I've got to get there. But I want to turn your attention to the passage that we read together, Matthew chapter 25. Oh, I hope that God grips your heart with this His word. And that the time we spend, and I'll endeavor to be brief, that the time we spend will not drag and will not seem long. The verse 6, And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. I want us just simply to notice the time of the cry, the substance of the cry, and the effect that it has. Let's consider then the time of the cry. At midnight there was a cry heard. Midnight is the hour of deepest darkness. Quite literally, the word means middle of the night. It's when the sun is right round the other side of the earth and we're in the deepest of shadow and darkness. Mr. Tom mentioned a verse in Daniel in the earlier discussions and I just mentally took a note of it. It's in Daniel chapter 8 and the verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, When the transgressors are come to the foo. Matthew chapter 25 is not talking about dusk or twilight or just after sunset. It's talking about the darkest hour. And that's when Jesus will come. If you think the world is bad today, my friend, we have yet to enter the darkest of darkness. That lies ahead. When the transgressor has come to the foe. That's what this voice is heard. Right there in the middle of the night. Right in the middle of the night. Read Revelation chapter 13. Read the darkness that's coming. Read the darkness that's coming on this world. But you and I have this glorious hope. In the midst of the darkness, the Lord is going to speak. The Lord is going to come. Repeatedly we're told that he will come as a thief in the night. It is in the night that he comes. He comes as a thief because he's utterly unexpected by the world. Then notice that this is the hour when darkness is about to give way to dawn. When you reach the middle of the darkness, then you're immediately beginning to move toward dawn. The darkness begins to lighten. The darkness begins to lighten. And bless God, and darkness in its fullness descends upon this world, my friend. We're but a step from the dawn of Christ's reign. Then again notice that this hour, the middle of the night, is the time that an army gets ready for battle. In Judges chapter 7, there's a little bit of information given us there regarding Gideon and his battle. Against the Midianites. Chapter 7 of Judges. And we're looking at the verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came onto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. That's the watch. The short three or four hour period that had midnight right in the middle. Started around about ten o'clock. And then at about 2 o'clock, right in the middle, was midnight. That's the hour that Gideon attacked the Midianite. That's the hour when suddenly, at his shout, men broke the containers and shone the lights. Oh, I tell you, that's how it's going to be. That's how it's going to be. At midnight, the Lord will respond to the wickedness of man that has plunged the world. Into darkness. I might just say this. In Isaiah chapter 10. I'm not going to take time to turn it up. You turn it up. Isaiah chapter 10. You have a reference to the Antichrist. And his defeat. And God says. As I defeated the Midianites. So I will defeat the Antichrist. And if you read. The account of the defeat of the Midianites. In Judges 7. You'll see that. They never came back again. To Israel. In fact, apart from Isaiah 10, there's no mention of the Midianites in the Bible again. The final defeat of rebellious man when Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes again. Oh, there's many other verses come to mind, but I'll forgo them at this present time, just for the sake of time we've kept you pretty busy today, so I'm not weary Then we come then to the substance of the cry, Behold. The word is translated lo, L-O, or save in a number of places. You can find it in Matthew chapter 24 and the verse 23. There it refers to deceivers claiming that Christ has come and they're saying lo, behold, here he is. But it's a deception. But when the Lord uses this word, Behold, the Bridegroom cometh. It's a genuine announcement. It's not a deception. It's not a deception. None shall mistake it. The world shall know when Jesus comes again. Then notice too that it's Behold, the Bridegroom. The Bridegroom. One of the titles of the Lord Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, the Savior makes a reference to the Bridegroom. Mark chapter 2 and the verse 20. Well, read the previous verse. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. That's today. We don't have... The presence of Christ amongst us, as did those who heard him preaching during his earthly ministry. The bridegroom has gone. He's been carried away to heaven. I think when we read Acts chapter 1, the verses 10 and 11, where the disciples are gazing steadfastly into heaven, we get something of the sense of loss that they must have. Been acutely aware of at that time. He's gone from us. The bridegroom had been taken away. That's why the church faithful, church people, have ever since that time been waiting on the saviour. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he defined their Christianity in the opening chapter of First Thessalonians, and he tells of how. All around have been talking about their conversion. Verse 9, "...for they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven." That was the disposition of the church in those days. They were waiting, waiting. That's a phrase we often use. We say to someone, "...what are you waiting on?" They're not doing anything, they're standing they're waiting. What are you waiting on? Does the church show that sort of aptitude today? Are we a people waiting? Are we not a people busy about anything and everything that concerns ourselves, our own well-being, our comforts, our earthly possessions, etc., etc., etc.? We're not a people waiting, as was the early church. There isn't a consciousness that the bridegroom is gone and we're waiting. For For his return, he's the one that's longed for. Well, this announcement says, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. You and I have experienced many things coming to us from heaven. As James tells us in the first chapter of his general epistle, all good things come from above come down from above. That's what the the Bible says. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not. And it shall be given him. Every good gift cometh down from above. But oh, I tell you, greatest of all gifts is coming again. Behold the bridegroom cometh. I don't believe, no matter how well you research the Bible, that you can ever comprehend the glories of that day. Or what it is we will experience and enjoy that day. You know, the Lord Jesus is called in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 7 the desire of all nations. is a wonderful title? And I will shake all nations. Dr. Douglas was mentioning that. And the desire... Of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts, the desire of all nations. Romans 8 speaks about the earth groaning, groaning, waiting for the adoption of God's people. Since the dawn of time, the redeemed have groaned and have longed, as I've already shown to you, for the Lord Jesus to come again. He is indeed the desire of his people among all nations. Then notice, it says, Go ye out to meet him. You know, as I read Matthew 25 tonight, I noticed, or I just had it brought home fresh to me in verse 1, and it says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. That's what the early church was like, you see. That's what the early church was like. They were waiting on the bridegroom, But then there came the period when they went to sleep. And then there came the voice from heaven at midnight, which woke them up and commanded, Go ye out to meet him. That's the church getting back to what it should have been doing all along. That's being restored to your first love. And I believe when Jesus Christ comes again by his grace, his church will be what it ought to be. And it will be like the early church. He's not going to come back to a defeated, overrun people. But he's going to come back to a people living for him and filled with blessing and with fire. Go ye out to meet him. Go ye out to meet him. That's what I hope springs from these meetings. Each one of us beginning to change the pattern of our lives so that we're waiting for the Lord to come. We're waiting for the Lord to come. We had Mr. and Mrs. Toms down with us for a few days. There's never enough days. We always enjoy having But I don't enjoy my wife's preparation for such, because you know what wives are nice. Like. Oh, I'm shouting. It'll do alright. They'll not mind. Don't worry. But no, no, no. This is to be done and that is to be done and the other thing changed and... Well, it's just as, well, I'm not in charge, Mrs. Tom's. And rather, it's my wife that gets things ready for you. But we need that. That spirit of energy and anxiety that looks around us and prepares ourselves, our lives, our families, our children, the Lord. Well, we'll quickly look at the effects of the cry. Then all those virgins arose and turned their lamp. <laughs> the lamp had gone out. Young ones today just don't know exactly what that means, trimming, maybe more than the young ones, but trimming their lamps. I can remember trimming the lamp, and you're burning a wick soaked in oil. After a while, the top of it, where the part that's burning, it gets ragged, and when it gets ragged, it begins to put forth a flame that's smoking, and... The globe on the lamp gets all smoky. The light is cut down and there's a smell in the room and all the rest. So what you have to do is just trim the top of the wick. Cut off the burnt bits and you have a nice even flame and no smoke. That's what's spoken of here. They were making their lamps efficient. They were trimming. It says they arose. Surely that indicates that they were recumbent, lying down. And is that not where the church is today? That word arose is illustrated for us in the Word of God in that it is linked to the base of another Greek word, part of the same family, let's say a cousin. And that word means to collect one's faculties. They arose, they collected their faculties. It's what you do in the morning when you're up. It takes you a moment or two. Focus the eyes. Recognize where it is you are. What time it is. What you have to do. And then you're up and at. You collect your faculties. It's something like David the prodigal. When he was in the far country. It says he came to his sense. Saw the circumstances in which he was. In a life that he had never Saw them in before. Realize, what a fool I am! They came to themselves. There's that idea here. They arose. They came to themselves. You remember Matthew chapter 8, to verse 15, you have an incident in the home of Peter. It's there we learn that Peter was a married man. In chapter 8, verse 14, and when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother. Lead and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. She arose. I'm suggesting to you that when the Lord removed the fever from Peter's mother, her faculties came back to her. You know, when you're in a fever, you have hallucinations. You imagine things. But when the fever goes, you come to your senses. And that's what happened to Peter's mother. She came to her senses and she stood up. And she began to serve them. I suggest to you that the church of Jesus Christ at the time of the end will be delivered from the feverish hallucinations that presently grip so many whereby they entertain notions about the return of Christ that are not in the Word of God. They're not real. I speak of Things like amillennialism, millennialism and other erroneous views concerning the second coming of Christ. I believe they are the result of a fever. The dreams that people have when they're asleep. But when Jesus comes again, he will give a shout, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose. And there's a throwing off of sleep. And there's a collecting of the senses. And the dreams of the night are gone. The imaginings of the night are gone. And reality dawns. I do believe with all my heart that that will happen. And that's when the church of Jesus Christ will come to understand unitedly the right view of the return of the Lord Jesus. I believe that we're marking the beginnings of that awakening, that stirring, when men like Bonner, W.B. Newton and others came to their senses and realized what the truth was concerning the coming again of Christ. How defenseless are those who sleep. You can do anything with a slumbering, sleeping person. They're open to any assault of the enemy. And so it is with a sleeping church. They're defenseless, vulnerable. But as soon as they get up, you'll notice that they return to their long-neglected duties. The duties of the first century church. That's what they engaged. I, <laughs> And as I showed you from Jude, not just the first century, but going right back to the days of Adam, that's what the redeemed were doing then, waiting for the bridegroom and burning a lamp and a light. If not within it did, did they shine a light concerning the coming of Christ? You'll notice the impact that the actions of the wise virgins has upon the unwise. The stirring by the wise stirs up the unwise. Causes them to realize we have no oil in our lump. Why is it so hard today to get across to the ungodly that they're not saved? Why is it so hard? Why do we find it so difficult to convince men and women around us that they're not ready for eternity? Because we are not manifesting the Spirit the energy, the disposition that these wise virgins show. They jumped up and they trimmed their lamps, set things in order, and in so doing drew attention of the unwise. To the fact. We have no flame, we have no oil, we can't trim our lamps. I tell you, if you and I were living for the Lord as we ought, the ungodly would know. Just from our trimming of our lamps, are holding aloft the light and are preparing for the coming of the Savior, we would get it across to the ungodly that they are ungodly. So often they don't see any difference in themselves and in us. But the unwise saw there was a big difference between themselves and the wise. They had no oil. There's a lesson here for us. A very practical lesson today. If we would see our friends, our loved ones, our children awakened to the need of their souls, then let us seek to live as did these wise virgins, aroused, awakened, stirred, and going about readying themselves to welcome the Savior. And at midnight there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Dear Christian. From this night, go ye out to meet him. Turn your back on everything else that is of this world and devote yourself to welcoming Christ. That's the message of this text. I trust that God will be pleased to bless to your hearts for Jesus' sake. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for your patience today. And I do trust that God will reward such by giving you a generous portion to take home and That is it upon the the Lord bless you.